<clears throat> I want you to imagine it's your first day working in a factory. New job, first day. You sign all the necessary paperwork out in the office, and then someone leads you to the plant. She opens the door, the heat hits you in the face, the machinery roars in your ears. The, the woman who escorted you says loudly, you wait here and somebody will be over to, to show you what to do. So you stand there against the wall and you feel anxious and out of place. You know, I've been there. I'm guessing you've been there too. Pretty soon a guy about your own age comes over and says, follow me. And he takes you back in the back to a line where about a half dozen people are working. And he says, so here's the fastest way to do this. When the part comes down the line, grab it with your left hand. Then grab a nylon spacer from the box with your right hand, put them together like this, and you should hear a click. He demonstrates, you hear the click. Then detach the casing like so, he shows you. Toss it into the box of used spacers. Then when that box is full, set it over here and someone will pick it up later. So you begin, and you're slower than everybody else, but that's all right because you know, you're new. After an hour or so, you have your first box of used casings, and you set it off to the side, you open a new box of spacers. A while later, you notice, or maybe you feel, someone looking over your shoulder, and it's a guy you haven't seen before, and he watches you for a couple of minutes, and then he steps up and he asks you what you're doing. Don't you hate that? What are you doing? Uh, uh, and you say, I'm, I'm putting spacers on these pieces, and then I'm putting the casings back in this box, and when I'm done, I set the box over there, and he tells you, you're doing it wrong. You ought to take the casing off before you put the spacer on. Otherwise, that bottom tab of the spacer where it connects might come undone when you remove the casing. And that could cause the part to fail. So you start to ask him a question, but he's already 10 feet away and you're talking to his back. So who should you listen to? The first guy or the second? And how do you know? You need to know who's in charge. I was doing a job once, the way I'd been told to do it, when I noticed a guy wearing a tie, and we didn't see many ties on the night shift, watching me. He's just standing off a few yards away, watching me. After a few minutes, he left. I felt a little relief by that. But then he came back with a foreman and a supervisor, and that worried me. And he ordered them to stop the line. And then he said, and he was mad, this line stays down till this man gets the right tool. I found out in that moment who was in charge. It's the guy with the tie. You know, I wear a tie for a reason on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Knowing who's in charge makes a huge difference. You know, most of us know who's in charge in the workplace. Not always the person with the title, right? It's the person with the authority. What's true in our workplaces is also true in our lives. We need to know who's in charge so we can live successfully. Now let me change the image. This time, don't imagine yourself in a factory. I mean, who wants to imagine themselves in a factory? This time, imagine yourself in a forest vast, dense forest, and you come to a fork in the path, and your guide says, we go right here, but someone else says, no, no, we'll never get back that way. We need to follow the path to the left. What do you do? 
I think that's a helpful image because it reminds us that the Christian life is not stationary. It's a pilgrim life. It's a movement. And we're following a leader, Jesus. It also reminds us that there are other people and other powers constantly telling us that it makes more sense to follow them. CBS News recently reported that the average American sees over 4,000 4, ads a day. Now, some researchers say that number is high, but even by the most conservative standards, you and I are being bombarded daily by many hundreds or a few thousand attempts to persuade us to follow a very, various courses of action. Behind those persuasive influences, there are intelligences, intelligent parties. St. Paul might refer to them as principalities and powers, trying to get us to act in ways that serve their interests. That's happening thousands of times a week to you. And for the most part, you're oblivious to it. It is vitally important for us to know who's in charge, who to follow. Go back to the Im image of the forest path. We can't follow two leaders who are going in different directions. As Jesus puts it, no one can serve two masters. So who are we going to follow? Who's in charge? There are voices loudly telling us to follow our dreams. Jesus says, follow me. Some experts are telling us, be yourself. Jesus says, lose yourself. They say, do what you feel. Be true to yourself. Jesus says, do what I say. Deny yourself. We're all on a path. There's a fork right in front of us. And life will be different depending on which voice we follow. Who do we believe is right? Who speaks with authority? Who's in charge here? I've come to think many people, even some who profess faith, have a kind of love-hate relationship with Jesus. I think this is true. They love him because of what he's given and at the same time resent him for what he requires. They love him because he offered his obedience they avoid him because he expects theirs. They love him because he gave them eternal life. They ignore him because he wants their daily life. They call to him, usually when they're in trouble, Lord, Lord. But they don't do what he says. That's precisely what we mustn't do. We mustn't say Jesus is in charge here when we're not listening to him, but are chasing other voices. You know how to say Jesus is in charge here in using biblical terminology? You say, Jesus is Lord. Listen to what he said. This is um, Luke 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, Lord. Why do you say I'm in charge? And do not do what I say. I'll show you what he's like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. 
the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now look, I know that the first thing you might think is, so we have to do what Jesus says to get into heaven? Yeah, but nobody obeys him perfectly, so that sounds like a kind of theology of works to me. Well, whatever you call it, this is Jesus' teaching. But let's not jump the gun. Who said anything about getting into heaven? Did I read about that? This is about getting through the storm. It's about not surviving death, but surviving difficulty. Jesus isn't just the creator of heaven and the earth. He's creator of people. He's not just in charge of galaxies, of Milky Way and Andromeda. He's in charge of people, of Mike and Andrea. He's the architect, as Hebrews 11 calls him. If we don't listen to him as we build our lives, and we are all building our lives, whether we're 10 years old or 80 years old, we're still building. If we don't listen to him, our lives will not be strong. And when the storm comes, they'll fall apart. Jesus knows how to build a life that lasts. He ought to. He's the one who designed it. Last year, there was a terrible tragedy in London, and one that was totally avoidable. Last year, an inferno engulfed a West London high-rise, and it killed at least 12 people. I say at least because people aren't quite sure. After, after the, the, this inferno, in the months to come, people filed wrongful death suits for hundreds of people, many of whom never existed. They made them up. But at least 12 people died, and the fire spread with unbelievable speed because the builders had used a cheaper cladding, the, the exciting kind of thing, that the ar- cheaper than the architect recommended so they could save money. Jesus is the design builder of our lives. And if we ignore his directions, we'll be devastated when trouble comes. The flood of emotions when our child is diagnosed with a disease, it will sweep us away. The raging fire when our spouse rejects us. The famine when we lose our job. The hurricane when our friends desert us. The long drought of senescence. It will leave us undone. One thing is sure. The storm is coming. Every week in our bulletin, we see it. In somebody's life, the storm is coming. It comes to everyone sooner or later. If not in this life, then in death. We see it in the parable that Jesus told. Both men faced exactly the same troubles. Don't get the idea, oh, because I'm a Christian, I'm not going to go through troubles like that. Both of these men faced the same troubles. Only one of them came through intact. Believing in Jesus doesn't keep us out of trouble. But he will see it through us. See us through it. Now, this whole series, we want to get down to earth. We want to get practical. The most practical thing you can do in terms of daily life is find out who's in charge. And then do what he says. It's down to earth, most practical thing you can do. The Bible claims that Jesus is in charge. If you acknowledge him as Lord, and I'm being practical here, you will not always do what other people do. In fact, sometimes you will have to stubbornly refuse 
to do what other people say because it contradicts what Jesus says. And that means, and I'm trying to be down to earth here, you need to know what Jesus says. How can you know what he says? We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Now, if you think, look, I believe in God. I accepted Jesus as a child in BBS. You know, I believed in him all my life just about. But, you know, I'm, just, I'm not like you. I'm just not that religious. Uh, I try to do the right thing. Try to be responsible. Lead my life as best I can. I guess that's all God can ask of a person. Well, let me respond to that. First, if you think, I'm, I'm not all that religious like you are, you're looking at the wrong person, man. I'm not either. Uh, you know, I've been around people, I've been pastoring for almost 40 years. I've been around lots of people who are super religious. I'm not one of them. I know every time I say that, somebody says, well, are you a hypocrite then? No, that's not the point. I mean, some people, they just love the service. They love the candles. They love all these things. It's a ritual. Just, it, they adore it. I do not. I adore the Savior. I'm not that religious either. So, okay, let's talk about it. Secondly, you say, well, I guess that's all God can ask of a person. You don't have to guess. You can read what God thinks. And the words he gave his holy apostles and prophets. Third, trying to be responsible is good. Don't assume that following Jesus, and people do this all the time, they assume that becoming a Christian will somehow relieve them of responsibility. Like, I won't have to decide. He'll tell me everything, uh, every step from now on. You will still need to decide what to do and how to do it and when to do it. Following Jesus does not abrogate your responsibility. It enhances it. Following Jesus does not excuse you from making decisions. It empowers you to make them and carry them out. Last, if you think the contrast here is between you in charge or Jesus in charge, that's often how it's presented in churches. You know, Are you going to be in charge of your life or is Jesus going to be in charge of your life? You're just being naive. If Jesus is not in charge, you don't gain authority over your life. You lose it. When people say, I just want to do what I want to do, what they're really saying without realizing it is, I just want to do what I've been programmed to do by forces outside myself. What my parents instilled in me as a child. What culture, teen culture, preteen culture, working class culture, retiree culture has conditioned me to regard as fun, secure, prestigious. What media has been whispering in my ears and flashing before my eyes for decades. That's all I want. You know, you might say, and some philosophers do, in the end, everyone does just what they want. That's all. Everyone does what they want in the end. Okay, let's say that's true. But where do our wants come from? Our wants are either being shaped, and either is not the right word, but because it's not an either or, it's a both. But our wants are being shaped by interaction with God or interaction with a system that relentlessly feeds us propaganda. You talk about doing what you want, 
But for that to happen, you have to become yourself, not a hodgepodge of other people's ideas and desires. And the one way to become your true self is by becoming Jesus' man or woman. The Christian life begins, which is another way of saying we begin to be our true selves when we confess Jesus as Lord or as I've been putting it, acknowledge him as the one in charge. And that life grows strong and robust as we do what the Lord Jesus says. It's no coincidence that in Luke's gospel, Matthew's as well, what follows this parable about what it means to confess Jesus as Lord is an illustration of what it looks like when someone recognizes he's in charge. So chapter 7 opens with a centurion centurion, a man over a century, a century of soldiers, a hundred soldiers. There's a centurion who's in trouble and he needs help. And if, if you're interested, this is a very important story in the Gospels. If you're interested, come to go deep on Wednesday night at Big B at 645. We're going to talk more about this. Think through what it means for us. The local Jewish council comes on this Gentile centurion's behalf to Jesus interesting how God makes things happen. Just fun that the local Jewish council is asking Jesus to help this guy. So Jesus says, yes, I just love that. Somebody asks him for help, he says, okay, I'll do it. And he, he goes. But on his way, as he's getting close to the centurion's house, a group of the centurion's friends come out with a message which they read to him verbatim. When Jesus hears the message, he is astounded. It's one of only two occasions in which Jesus is said to be amazed. And both of them have to do with faith. The centurion's message goes like this, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. See, the centurion knew that Jesus might well bring trouble on himself, censure and criticism from the larger Jewish community by entering a Gentile's home. Remember what happened to Peter? After he went into a Gentile's home, the church, jumped, the church jumped all over him. What were you doing? What were you thinking? And the, this centurion understands that. Perhaps he was also humbled because he understood better than even Jesus' disciples who he was dealing with. And he says, I'm not worth the trouble. But, verse 7, say the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word. He then explains, and his explanation is important, for I myself, a paraphrase, I myself am a man both in authority and under authority. So I recognize authority when I see it, and I see it in you. When I say go, people go. When I say come, people come. When I tell my servant do this, he does it. When you're in authority, a word is all it takes, and you, Jesus, are in authority. You're in charge here. So if you say the word, it'll happen because you're in charge. Jesus exclaimed, I haven't seen such faith in all Israel. This guy got it. He understood how things work in the world and he understood who's in charge, Jesus. And he acted on that understanding. So it is ironic, I think. People in the church, we often talk about confessing Jesus and it, it's often said in terms of getting into heaven. But confessing Jesus, Lord, is the most down-to-earth thing you can do. Heaven's requirement turns out to be earth's most useful practice. 
Have you done it? Have you confessed Jesus Lord? If you're not sure, you probably haven't. People don't confess Jesus by accident. Confessing Jesus is not a religious ritual that you might have performed and forgotten. Oh yeah, when I was in the Methodist church, I think we did that. No, it's not a Sunday school lesson for children. It is the verbalization of a God-given insight that Jesus is in charge and an earthly commitment to act like it. Confessing Jesus is practical in the same way following the architect's blueprints is practical. It's down to earth the same way following the right guide through the forest is down to earth. People assume that confessing Jesus is a religious thing to do. No, it's a realistic thing to do. The most realistic thing to do. Now, even when we confess Jesus Lord and mean it, there are all kinds of things that can keep us from acting on our confession. Some of those things are inside of us, and they've been inside of us for a long, long time. And some of those are, come from without. One of the biggest obstacles is that we think we know more than we do. We think we know best. And so we either don't bother to find out what Jesus says, or we do what we want in spite of what Jesus says. Because we know. We just know. Reggie Jackson, you baseball fans will remember him, American League MVP, 14-time All-Star, and uh, how can I put it, a little arrogant. <laughs> he was a showboater. He stole more bases in his one year when he was in Baltimore than he stole in any other season in his whole career. And that's surprising because his hot-headed manager, Earl Weaver, He's the only manager I know of, and maybe some of you baseball guys can correct me. He's the only manager I know of who got through out of games, more than one of them, before the game started. I don't know how that happens, but <laughs> he had a hard and fast rule that no one steals a base without a steal sign. No one. But Reggie Jackson thought he knew better. He got him first. He looked for the sign. He didn't get it, and it made him mad. He knew, he just knew that pitcher, that catcher, he could beat the throw to second base. So he didn't get a sign again. And he decided, I don't care, I'm doing it. And he took off. And he slid into second. He was way before the throw. He bounced up. He was smiling to ear from ear, from ear to ear. You know, I am all that. Weaver wasn't happy, and when Weaver wasn't happy, people heard about it. So he took Reggie aside, and he told him why he hadn't given the steal sign. The next batter in the lineup was Lee May. He was the team's best slugger after Jackson. By stealing second, Jackson left first base open. The other team didn't have to pitch to him. They walked him intentionally, took the bat right out of his hands. The batter after May, Earl Weaver knew that guy's history with this pitcher. He'd never been able to hit him. And now he's got people on base, and he thinks, I have to put in a pinch hitter. But he didn't want to do that this early in the game because he knew it was going to hurt him down the stretch having a weaker bench. But he had to do it. See, all Reggie Jackson could see was himself and the pitcher and the catcher. But Earl Weaver could see the whole game. Now, here's the point. You and I don't see the whole game. 
We can't see the whole game. But Jesus does. He's in charge. Do you believe that? When you acknowledge that, you're admitting he knows better than I do. He sees things that I don't see. And then it makes sense to do what he says. Now, you have to know what he says. So it's a great help to know the Bible. And we're going to talk about that. So far we've talked about why last week. Who this week? Who's in charge? Next week we're going to talk about where. Where are we in this whole scheme? Where do we fit? And we'll be talking about the Bible. But knowing the Bible, please hear this. I love the Bible. I have spent hours every morning for the last many decades in the Bible. My practice for the last few years, I've had different practices, but for the last few years is to read from the Psalms, to read from the Old Testament, to read from the New Testament epistles, and then read from the Gospels. And I prayerfully read every morning, and it has been the most transformative practice of my life. I love the Bible, so I want, I want you to hear that before I say what I'm about to say. Knowing the Bible can never replace acknowledging Jesus is in charge. Confessing him, Lord. St. Paul did not say, if we know the Bible with our minds and believe it with our hearts, we will be saved. He says, if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Today I'm going to ask you to confess Jesus, Lord. Now if you say, I've already done that, I say, great. Do it again. Confessing Jesus is not something you did. It's not a box you check off. It's something you do. It's a way of life. Now, I'm not, I'm not asking you to confess Jesus, Lord, if you don't believe it. That would only hurt you. But see, remember, this isn't about being religious. It's about being real. If you haven't had the heaven-given insight that Jesus is in charge... If you don't believe that bringing your life into line with him is the smartest thing you can do, don't confess him, Lord. If you're not there yet, you're not there yet. Don't act like you are. Never pretend. Not for me, not for anybody. It's devastating to the spiritual life. But if you're there, if you believe Jesus is in charge, maybe you've just come to believe that. The Lord of heaven and earth, and the Lord of you. I invite you to join me right now in confessing Jesus, Lord. We'll put this confession on the screen. You can share it with me. It doesn't have to be these words, right? That's not the point. But it helps to verbalize. So I invite you, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, and you're willing to align your life with him, say this with me. Jesus, I acknowledge that you are in charge. I confess you, Lord. Lord of all the earth and of all of me, I choose this day, God helping me, to bring my life in line with this confession. So be it. Amen. God, hear our prayer. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to